0: that's enough for my announcements. The glory of the garden of Gethsemane. The glory of the garden of Gethsemane. That's what I'm titling this. I love gardens. I'm not much of a gardener, but I love gardens and I love their beauty. If you've ever seen a a really well-maintained and taken care of garden, it's it's something to imi- admire, it's some glory there when you look at that. Wow, look at this how it just shines forth. Astounding beauty that's that's the idea when I think of glory. Astounding beauty. So we're going to look at a garden today. It's going to be a little bit different. The beauty is not necessarily going to be in the flowers or the plants or the trees or in the way that this garden was maintained, but it's it's more about the people in the garden and and the conversation that takes place. And and that's what we're going to see. And that's what I'm referring to. But before I get started, because it's a serious message today, as if any Sunday isn't. it's it's a little more serious even today. I thought it would be good to lighten your load just a little bit with a little joke. This is about a garden. It says, an old Italian man lived along, alone in the country. And it was spring. And he wanted to dig his tomato garden. Right, Bill? Where's Bill? You in here, Bill? He's serving of course uh, he's a big tomato guy and so he's done this every year and he's getting ready to plant his tomato crop in this story but it's really hard work because the guy's old hi bill there you are talking about tomato gardens, so you better listen <laughs> very hard work and the guy's not up to doing all of the things he has to do his only son vincent who used to help him he's in prison And so the old man wrote his son a letter, and he described his situation. So here's how the letter goes. Dear Vincent, I am feeling pretty bad because it looks like I won't be able to plant my tomato garden this year. I'm just getting too old to be digging up a garden plot. If only you were here, my troubles would be over. I know you would dig the plot for me. Love, Dad. A few days later, he received a letter from his son. Dear Dad, not for nothing, but don't dig up that garden. That's where I buried the bodies. And, of course, he capitalized the the word bodies. Love, Vinny. At 4 a.m. the next morning, FBI agents and local police arrived at the old man's house and dug up the entire area. However, they didn't find any bodies, so they apologized to the old man and left. That same day, the old man received another letter from his son. Dear Dad, go ahead and plant the tomatoes now. That's the best I could do under the circumstances. (laughs) Love Vinny. I like that. All right, so here's where we are in Mark. This is the context. This is so you understand the story, just to catch you all up, keep you on board. It is still late Thursday evening, okay, around midnight, near, closer to midnight now than it was before. Jesus will be arrested, tried, and hung on the cross all by 9 a.m. the next day, Friday. Thursday night, however, he has celebrated the Passover supper with his disciples. And if you remember, if you were here, Jesus used this meal, this Passover meal, to communicate some very important truths about his pending death, now hours away. According to Jesus, the traditional bread and wine of the Passover meal were now symbols of his body and his blood that would be offered up on the cross for the forgiveness of, of sins Matthew 26:28 The night is almost over and Jesus and his disciples leave the city and now they are making their way to the Mount of Olives which is located just east of Jerusalem Earlier in the night Jesus had told them his disciples the 12 that they would betray him or that one would betray them actually Judas is the betrayer that Jesus was referring to. However, the other 11 disciples do not know that. Sometime in that night, Jesus dismissed Judas from the party to go and leave. But no one one else knows why he left except Judas and Jesus. Now, during this short journey from the city of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, like I told you last week, about a 15-minute walk, Jesus informs his remaining 11 disciples, and I think we looked at this last week, that they are all going to abandon him. So one's already gone betraying him, and now he tells the remaining 11, you're all going to fall away. Peter, who was the most outspoken of this group, strongly protests this idea that that he would turn on Jesus. But then Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to deny even knowing me or having a relationship with me before the morning even comes. Meanwhile, Judas the traitor is back in Jerusalem helping prepare for the arrest of Jesus that is going to take place in a few hours. After a short walk, Jesus and the eleven arrived at their destination, a garden. Only John, John 18.1, refers to this location as a garden. The other Gospels refer to it as Gethsemane. That's the location. So we refer to it as the Garden of Gethsemane. It's located low on the western slope on the Mount of Olives. According to John's Gospel, we read that Jesus often met there with his disciples. This was a a favored place for them to go. We see that in John 18.2. And in Luke 22.39, we're told it was their custom to go here. This is typically where they would retire for the night. In fact, in Luke 21:37 it says just that that they would go to the Mount of Olives and they would spend the night there after being in the city during the day. Specifically, I believe in this location, this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane literally means the word literally means press of oils. Press of oils or to say it another way, oil press. Oil press. This place was a garden-like area in the midst of an olive orchard. This is why we call it the Mount of Olives because it's covered with olive trees. So this is a garden-like area in the midst of an olive orchard on the Mount of Olives and likely we believe it was enclosed with a stone wall, this particular area called the garden, and equipped with an oil press. This is why the name Gethsemane. The oil press was used for crushing the oil out of the olives and creating olive oil, okay, which was a very desired commodity in their culture and continues to be in ours. Olive oil is used for many things. Now, as I said before, it's what occurs in this garden on this evening when Jesus is there with his disciples for the very last time that I believe makes this place, this particular place, so glorious so awesome, so beautiful, something to behold. Let's look together at the glory of the Garden of Gethsemane as we look at God's Word. Mark chapter 14, follow along with me, beginning in verse 32. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This morning, we're going to discover three beautiful truths from Christ's final visit to Gethsemane that will help us see why he is so worthy, beloved, of our worship and of our obedience. And of our obedience. There is much that we could look at in this particular passage, but this morning, just three particular truths. So. The first is this, Christ's incomprehensible cup. Christ's incomprehensible cup. We're going to spend most of our time right here, right on this point, and then the other two points will be fairly short. Incomprehensible, you know what that means? It means beyond understanding. It just comes a point where I don't. I really don't get it. I can't grasp this. Like trying to figure out where the universe ends, if it ends. It's that kind of idea, the the vastness of it, just trying to get my, my mind around it. I can't. I'm too small, and this is just too big. And that's the case with this cup. Jesus is praying in the garden to God his Father, and he says, remove this cup from me. That's what he said. That's in the text, verse 36. What is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, we can draw two conclusions right away without doing any other research. The first one would be that whatever the cup is, it must not be good. Because Jesus is asking for it to be removed or taken away from him. That's the first one. And second, God the Father apparently has something to do with this cup because Jesus is asking him to remove it. He's asking him to remove it. Matthew's account puts Jesus' statement this way in Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Beloved, to say that this cup has got Jesus upset is really an incredible understatement. Making his way into the garden, verse 33, he states this, or the text states this, that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Do you see it there in the text? Began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, Bible commentators, they pause here. They all pause here and they want to make a point out of this unusual and alarming description of Jesus' mental and emotional state at this point in the evening in the garden. The word begin, in fact, if you see it in the text, it implies that the start of something new. In other words, earlier in the night, Jesus was not like this. Something has changed. And it is apparent to those around Him. They see it in His face, in His body language. The first word there that is translated in verse 33 in our English Bibles, greatly distressed, especially in the ESV that we use here, greatly distressed, it says of Jesus, in the old King James Version, they translate it sore amazed. Sore amazed. Now, that's probably a little harder for us to understand, so the newer translations try to give us something that's a little bit easier for us to get our minds around, but sore amazed is actually closer to the original Greek language of the manuscripts. Sore amazed. It means painfully surprised. Painfully surprised. Let me see if I can just illustrate this. Imagine the look on a parent's face and their body language when they are told for the first time that their child has terminal cancer. Picture that, sore amazed, sore amazed. We are told also that Jesus began to be troubled, so greatly distressed and troubled. And again, the original word means full of heaviness, literally full of heaviness or extreme anguish, extreme anguish. According to one scholar, when you put the two descriptions of Jesus together here in this account in Mark, what you have that is greatly distressed and troubled, they, and this will pop up in a second, describe an extremely acute emotion, a compound of bewilderment, fear, uncertainty, and anxiety, nowhere else portrayed in such vivid terms as here. Okay? Try... Try for a moment, as we're here in the garden, to go there. To see what I'm trying to describe to you. See Jesus in this state. One translation does a probably a better job of bringing out the meaning in more contemporary language by translating this little section here like this. Horror and anguish overwhelmed him. Horror. Adding to the description of Jesus' condition, Jesus actually says this in Mark 14.34. Look back at the text. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Listen, Jesus isn't trying to, to pretend here to be tough and strong, but He's completely transparent with His men. Openly, He shares with His disciples the intensity of his sorrow so strong that according to Jesus' words, it was threatening even to crush out his life, as one writer puts it. In other words, his grief was so intense that it was on the verge of killing him. Now, I know we can relate to that in some degree. Probably most of us who have lived long enough to have... Such a great amount of stress or distress or grief even that it feels like your heart's going to stop. feels like you're going to die. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. Luke's account of this episode adds something else. So Luke is another gospel that also talks about what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. You don't have to turn there, but it'll pop up. Luke 22, verse 43 While he's in the garden, it says, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This is how serious the situation is. That an angel has to come from heaven to help the Son of God. (laughs) And then it says in verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, beloved... There's one of two things going on here in verse 44 that's being described. We're not sure. Either Jesus is sweating so profusely. You understand this when when you're under an incredible amount of burden and stress and anxiety. you You can begin to sweat. And he's sweating so heavily that they're saying it looks like blood just pouring out of a wound. It could be referring to that. It may also be referring to, and it's interesting, Luke was a doctor, and he's the only one that records this. It could also be referring to a rare but real medical condition, and maybe you've heard this before, called hemotidrosis, where the body's blood vessels around the sweat glands rupture when the body is under the pressure of incredible stress. And as a result, blood now enters into the sweat glands and is pushed out with the sweat, which results in droplets of blood mixed with the sweat. The result is you actually sweat blood. It's been documented that this condition can happen, but it's very rare because the stress has to be incredibly intense. One writer says this, just Pulling back for a second and thinking about what's going on right now. He says the whole picture denotes or indicates an overwhelming agony which is quite beyond human comprehension. Beloved, this is beyond. Just take whatever degree of stress or, or problems you've been under in your life and just magnify it 100 to the 10th power. That's what the writer is saying. That's what's going on in Jesus' life right now at this moment. Another writer adds, Nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the laments of the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. Now, beloved, think about this with me. Let's back up for a second. As we consider the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had healed the sick cast out demons, commanded the wind, walked on water, raised the dead, and spoke boldly against the religious authorities. He was powerful. That's the presentation we get. He was strong. He was mighty. Additionally, he foretold his death on multiple occasions that would occur in Jerusalem. And yet he did not retreat or hide, or run away. And in fact, we see in multiple occasions, for instance, John 8, 59, when the crowd wants to kill him, when the religious leaders want to take his life, he avoids it. He gets out of it. Why? Because he's making his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. But now, in the final hours... In the garden, He is coming apart at the seams. He is collapsing under the weight of extreme stress. And He has asked His Father, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from Me. What is this cup that has brought such anguish to Jesus' soul? Is it simply the thought of the pending execution of crucifixion? Now, beloved, that was a terrible way to die, and it certainly would have caused men to tremble. But the cruelty of the Roman cross is not enough to explain Jesus' reaction here in the garden. It's not enough. It doesn't account for it. To answer the question, we need to consider Two things. One, the ancient symbolism of the cup. And two, its use in the Old Testament Scriptures as a metaphor. So let me explain that quickly. In ancient times, Jesus' times, before Jesus, one way one way that people would assassinate other people, like kings, especially kings, was to poison their cup. It was to poison the cup that they would drink out of. This is why cupbearers existed in the king's service. Maybe you remember this. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. And what a cupbearer did, his main responsibility was to protect what the king drank, to watch over it, to make sure that what he was served was poison-free because it was a way to get rid of a king. And also, beyond that, sometimes he would need to actually take a drink first just to be sure you imagine that job? And so they would just wait, you know, see if the cupbearer doesn't die, then all is well, and the king can proceed with his drinking. Well, because of that, the phrase to drink the cup, it became a, a metaphor for tragedy or disaster. Oh, you're going to have to drink the cup. And so that concept, that, that picture, that metaphor became the same way of saying you've you're going to have tragedy or disaster come upon you. Additionally, and more importantly, beloved, is the cup metaphor was used in the Old Testament to symbolize, and listen, to symbolize God's just punishment. Just. Punishment or judgment, that is His wrath against sin. His holy wrath against rebellion. Let me give you one example. I'll give you two, actually. Just one. Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah Chapter 25, verses 15 through 17. There, Jeremiah is on behalf of the Lord, is speaking. It says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah, take from my hand, that is God's hand, this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Verse 17, so I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Okay, you see the metaphor? Cup, God's judgment against sin, His wrath, His holy anger coming against rebels. How about Isaiah 51, 17? There are more passages, but we'll just do a couple Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. Now this is being spoken against the nation of Israel. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl. Dregs, beloved, is that stuff at the bottom of a wine bottle or coffee or something like that. It's the little pieces, the sediments that, that are heavy, and they go to the bottom of the bottle or the cup. So the writer is saying here, you drink it all the way down to the dregs. There wasn't anything left. It is the cup of staggering. Beloved, the cup that the Lord Jesus must drink, the cup that he's going to have to drink, and that he's deeply distressed over, is the cup of his Father's wrath and judgment. It is the cup of his Father's wrath and judgment. Wait a minute. What did Jesus do wrong? Beloved, did did Jesus ever do anything wrong in his life? Ever. Ever. We weren't there, but we know. Through revelation, we know that he never did anything wrong. He was without sin. Here's some passages 1 John 3 5, 1 Peter 2 22, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 27. There are more. Christ was sinless, he never sinned. So, why in the world would he have to drink the cup of his father's wrath against sin? It's simple. He had to drink the cup of his father's wrath for our sins. And that's exactly what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We've read it before. Maybe you're familiar with it. For our sake. He's talking about Christians, believers. For our sake. on For our benefit. He, that is God. The Father, made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? Beloved, we, we read past that. But it is that reality that has brought Jesus to a collapse, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, to the verge of death. It is that reality. Isaiah 53, we know this passage, it speaks of our Savior, our Messiah in the Old Testament. Just gonna read two passages, two verses of Isaiah 53. Referring to the Messiah, it says this, but he, that is Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that is God, Yahweh, has laid on Him the iniquity. That is a word for wickedness. The sin. He has laid it all. The iniquity of us all on Him. Now... Let me read you this. This is just, I thought this was so good, so I wanted to take it and show you. This is right out of that study Bible that we, we have available in the back. If you don't have a good study Bible, I always recommend that. Right out of the study Bible on this passage, here's what the, the author says. He says, The manner in which God laid our iniquity, our sin on Him, that is Jesus, was that God treated Him, listen, God treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though he was perfectly innocent of any sin. Another commentator says, the cause of Jesus' sore trouble was not physical fear, but the pressure upon his sinless soul of the sin of the world, together with His knowledge of what bearing it actually involved. I like this too, this quote. It is one thing, beloved, fearful as it will be, to answer for our sins before a holy and almighty God. Okay? Think about that. Holy and perfect God having to to give an account to Him for our sins, our wickedness. All of them, beloved, all of them. Think about that for a moment. Now that is an awfully terrifying thing. Would you agree? And if you don't agree, you're delirious. You are delirious. You either don't understand God or you don't understand how messed up you are and have been. But then he says... Who could imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the world? Jason referred to it this morning just thinking about our own sin, but now billions. And beloved, let's just be clear. Sin, you know, gossip, slander, Hatred, unforgiveness, murder, rape, lust, and every other vile thing under the sun. Drinking this cup meant Jesus would have to, as one writer puts it, identify with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath Against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. Let's stay here just for another moment. Let's stay here. Let's think here for a moment. Let's look at another quote which I found incredibly helpful to me. Regarding Jesus, the writer says in the garden, He is facing something completely alien to Himself. He has never known sin personally. He has never known the wrath of God. Only His love. And what God was asking him to do was to embrace sin as a sin bearer. Not as a sinner. Jesus did not become a sinner, but as a sin bearer. To take the wrath of God for sin, to receive divine Punishment. He struggled because the power of holiness was the only power that existed in Jesus. How can he possibly become a sin bearer and receive upon himself the wrath of God? And the level of divine wrath is staggering because our Lord will embrace eternities of wrath, eternities of divine punishment. The writer goes on to say, what do you mean by that? I mean, for every sinner for whom he died, he took the sinner's eternal wrath. For the millions of sinners for whom he died, he took a million eternities full of wrath. And he was holy, harmless, and undefiled, separate from sinners, as Hebrews tells us. And how could this be? That's why his struggle was so immense. Mark 14.36 and he said looking back at the text Abba it's an affectionate term it's a term that would be used almost like daddy with your children children to a father human father Abba father all, all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet Not what I will, but what you will. Some have questioned why Jesus asked this of His Father. Some have questioned. But if you understand Jesus' holy and perfect and sinless nature, and then you understand the unholy and sinful nature of what He is being asked to do, then it makes total sense. One writer says, it was the recoil of his holy nature against taking upon himself human sin. Our sin, beloved. Our sin. And corruption that produced his agony and caused him to petition the Father to remove this cup, to let it be carried past untasted. Another writer says, we don't have a perfect hatred for sin. I wish we did. I wish we did, because we would be much better off if we did. But you know what? Jesus did. He was the Holy Son of God. He had a a loathing for sin. He hated sin. Everything in His being was repulsed by the thought of iniquity. We play with it. We dabble in it. We entertain it. We explore it. But our Lord Jesus Christ... It repulsed him. And his plea then is absolutely consistent with his nature as God. No wonder he came almost to the point of death. But in the end, beloved, Jesus' decision, as it always was, was to do the will of his Father. Even if it meant something as horrific as becoming a sin bearer, and taking upon Himself His Father's wrath on behalf of or in the place of sinners. Us. Now, there is no way. There is really no way for me or for you or for any of us to fully comprehend what Jesus said yes to in that garden. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it. Do you understand what I'm saying? That doesn't mean we shouldn't meditate on it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't ponder it. We should. Because his sacrifice was awesome. His sacrifice was glorious. His sacrifice was immense, huge, incomprehensible for us. And I think it would be helpful for us to consider the original context of Jesus' words here the next time we use the phrase, yet not what I will, but what you will, Lord. I think that's a good attitude, right? It's a great attitude. We should have the Lord's attitude. We want to do the will of the Father. I totally agree. I'm all for that. Yet not what I will. Let my will be your will, Father. But just realize that the first time that was said, realize what he's saying it to. Well, the next two points are very simple. And they are made more significant in light of this first point. And that's beginning with the second point, Christ's inconceivable concern. We have His the incomprehensible cup, and now we're looking at His inconceivable concern. By inconceivable, I mean extremely unlikely or even hard to imagine. It's mind-blowing in a sense. Something very surprising that takes place in this garden. Beyond this cup, we have something else here. Verse 37, look back at the text. It says, He came, that is Jesus, and He found them sleeping. Remember, where did He come from? He's a stone's throw away from His disciples. He's praying. He's agonizing. If we take all the Gospel accounts, He's dropped to His knees. His face is on the ground. He's crying out, Abba, Father! If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And he comes back. And he found his disciples sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, which is his original birth name, Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now beloved, we we talked about this last week. We talked about the weakness of our condition and everything else, and people will go here and, and rightfully so and they will they will take a look at just the kind of sad stuff that's going on here. Remember, it's midnight. It's midnight, it's been a long day, their tummies are full. I have a hard time staying awake. So don't be too hard on these guys. They're asleep, it's the middle of the night. But Jesus had warned them, stay awake, stay alert. They, they did. They couldn't, and they're out. Here's what I want you to see, though. Here's what I want you to see. In the midst of Jesus' unimaginable sorrow, horror, grief, and emotional and mental distress, in the midst of all that, He is still concerned about the well-being of His followers. Of his disciples. Beloved, look, he pauses for a moment from this serious, gun wrenching prayer to his Father. He comes to his three disciples, who we know are the the leaders among the the twelve. He finds them sleeping, as we see in the text. But Jesus is greatly concerned about them and their lack of spiritual preparation because he knows what is coming in a few hours. His arrest, His trial, and His murder. And their faith in Him as the true Messiah that they said they've been waiting for, it will be sorely tested. It will be tested. So He exhorted them to stay alert and to pray. You know why? Because He knows His men will need God's strength. Just like we all do, in order to keep from yielding or giving in to the coming temptation. One writer says, their attitude of alertness and prayer will enable them to escape a damaging entrance into the temptation of believing that he is not the Messiah. Beloved, hes they're going to be blown away because in a few moments he's going to be taken away by the crowds. He's going to be tried. He's going to be hung on a cross and he's going to die. And their hopes will be shattered. And the temptation is that they would stop believing that he really is the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Now, just more to this point. In John 10, we know this passage. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus says of himself, in opposition to the false shepherds of Israel, the bad shepherds, he says, listen, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming. You know, wolves like to eat sheep. He sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. So what we learn from that passage, among many things, is that the good shepherd then, regardless of dangerous or difficult circumstances, regardless, never stops caring for his sheep. He's even willing to lay down his life for the sheep. He's going to take care of the sheep. Jesus, and that's exactly what we see here in the garden, Jesus, while reflecting on and agonizing over the necessity for Him to become a sin bearer and become the object of His Father's holy anger, breaks from His prayer. You gotta see it, beloved. We weren't there, but it's, we have enough. We can be there. He breaks from this agony, from maybe sweating blood even, dripping with sweat. Heavy with burning. He breaks and gets up. Guys, you need to pray because temptation's coming for you. And you're going to need God's strength. And beloved, he doesn't do it once. He does it two more times in the night. And the text tells us the first time that he left him, he goes back and he's saying the same prayer. He's still praying to God. He's still saying the same things. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Again, he stops, and it says in verse 40, and again he came and he found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Listen, we can beat up on the disciples, but that's not what I want to do this morning. I want you to see Christ in all of his glory. Again, he comes. He comes and finds them sleeping, and they don't know what to say. And verse 41, and he came the third time. And he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? I don't think Jesus was being sarcastic here. I don't think he was like you. Ugh. You know, like you know, I remember when my son used to live in the house and it was eleven o'clock. And he was still in bed. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And he'd be like, Are you kidding me? Are you still sleeping? See that's their sarcasm there. I don't. I don't think that's what this was at all. Jesus is caring for them. He's concerned for them, and he knows what's coming. In the midst of all the stuff going on with him, beloved, when we fall into difficult circumstances, what is our normal reaction? When we have super, mega stress, typically we turn inward. We turn in where we become self-focused. We don't have time for anyone else. My problems are too big. I can't be I can't afford to be concerned about others. You don't know how much is going on in my life. Right? Some of you. Okay, well that just me I guess, but but thanks be to God that our good shepherd Jesus Christ no matter what the circumstances never stops. Caring for His people. Never. He never stops concerning Himself with our spiritual well-being. Never. He continually goes back to us. Continually watching over us. Continually exhorting us. He is truly amazing. He is truly glorious. He is truly, beloved, worthy of our worship. Finally, Christ's incredible courage will end with this. Look back at the text, Mark 14, verse 41. We see this first, this incomprehensible cup. How could we ever understand what it means to become the sin bearer for the world and to take upon Himself God's eternal wrath? We see His inconceivable concern that in the midst of that pain and suffering, He would still take the time to reach out to His disciples and encourage them to stay awake, to pray for God's strength to face what was coming. And finally, Christ's incredible courage. Verse 41, He came the third time and He said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Beloved, Judas comes with a, a large crowd of people. We'll get to this eventually in the text. He comes with a large crowd of people, soldiers and the religious leaders, and it's in the middle of the night. So they didn't have flashlights and stuff like that back then. They didn't have cars. So they would have come with lanterns and fire they're on the low slope, okay, of the Mount of Olives, so they're a little bit higher on this mountain than the city. They would have been coming from the city. He would have seen them coming. Here they come. Here they come. He had a he had plenty of notice. It wasn't like they snuck up on him. Here they come. He knows what's coming. Jesus had dismissed Judas earlier in the night. When he dismissed him, he knew what it was for, that Judas would go and betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Would tell the religious authorities where Jesus is. Would make sure it was a good location, where it was private, where they could take him without the crowds being upset. Jesus left the city, even after he dismissed Judas. Beloved, he left the city, but not to escape He knew where Judas was going. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew what that was going to lead to. He leaves the city not to escape, but he goes to a spot. A secret spot? No, a spot that the disciples were familiar with. A spot that was his regular place to go in the evening. A spot that Judas had been to many times before. A spot that Judas knew according to John 18. Verse 2. Upon arriving there, Jesus is overcome with the humanly incomprehensible reality of what He is about to undergo. And in light of that, as we've seen in the text, He asks His Father to remove it. But you know what? It is the Father's will. It is the Father's will to crush His Son for our iniquities. And John 6.38 says Jesus came here to do the Father's will. So He does not run. He does not hide. He does not fight, but goes forth and gives Himself into the hand of His betrayer and the hostile crowd who would shortly deliver Him over to be crucified and to drink the awful cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom. Let's pick up in John 18 here. It also captures this story in verse 4. Listen to what it says. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him. he's, He's come out of the garden. He has committed Himself to doing the Father's will. As awful and as horrific as this will be. To take upon Himself sin. And to experience the wrath of His Father. Holy wrath. Against that sin, as he stood in our place on that cross. Knowing all that would happen, he came forward and said to them, the crowd that has come up to the mountaintop, low there in the garden, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, you have one more opportunity. For whatever reason, they don't know exactly it's you. It's dark. You can flee. He said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as we read the passage, it says, we find out that Peter, you remember Peter, the one who said, I'll never fail you, Lord. Peter was always the outspoken one. Peter was really a a leader of this twelve. He was not willing to let Jesus surrender. He still didn't understand. He was not willing. He wasn't just going to let them take Jesus. Jesus. So we see in verse, eight, verse 10 of chapter 18, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, <laughs> drew it. And this is amazing. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now, I don't, I don't know if he was going for the throat and he missed and he's a bad shot. Or he's really good and he just wanted to put a little punishment. I don't, I don't know exactly. But this is what happened according to the text. Right ear is cut off. It tells us the servant's name was Malchus. And listen, this is so revealing. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword. Put it away, Peter. Put it into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Beloved, I've said this before and it's worth saying again. Jesus was not a victim. He was not a victim. He was not caught off guard. He was not taken by surprise. They did not drag Him to the cross, kicking and screaming. Jesus courageously and on purpose went to the cross to drink the cup that the Father had given Him. Not only did He willingly face the physical pain of crucifixion and the bodily suffering that we know happened leading up to that event, the whipping and the spitting and the cursing and the beating, but He knowingly, and this is the amazing part, He knowingly and courageously faced the spiritual torment of taking upon Himself the awfulness of our sin and bearing the crushing judgment of His Holy Father in our place. See, when you read Romans 6.23, in light of all that, it means a lot more. But the free gift of God is eternal life. And, and it comes in Christ Jesus our Lord because it was Him who satisfied God's justice by drinking the cup of His Father's wrath poured out on Him as He became the sin bearer taking upon Himself all the sin, all of it, of His people. Beloved, that's why we worship Him. He is so worthy. He's so worthy. No one else would do that for you. No one else could do that for you. And that's what we celebrate this morning. When we, when we have communion, remember that just hours earlier in this night at the Passover Supper, He had took the, the bread that we use a cracker now, and He took the wine, we use grape juice, and he, he took these elements and He said, this is my body. You guys don't get this, but you'll get it. You'll understand it. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's what we celebrate this morning. As we partake, those of us who identify with Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, those of us who have placed our faith in Him, believing, beloved, that He was the substitute for our sin, that He did pay the price in full, you know John's Gospel. At the very end, if we put all the gospels together. It's beautiful. We'll get there. But in John's Gospel, one of the things Jesus says when it's all said and done, when darkness came upon the land and he was suffering and enduring upon himself the very wrath of his Father, drinking that cup all the way down to the very bottom, he said, "It is finished. It is finished." I drink it all. God's justice has been satisfied. I have purchased redemption, salvation, eternal life. I have done it for my people. That's what we celebrate this morning, beloved. So in a moment, the cup and the bread will be passed around. I would ask you to just meditate upon what we've talked about this morning meditate on that inconceivable cup as we share in this meal together. At the end, we will all eat together. Let me pray for for this, this morning. Father God, It's we read this text and hopefully, Father, I pray that what we talked about this morning would enlighten people, would cause them to To think a little bit differently, more deeply, more focused and concentrated. How awful our sin is. Jesus was in agony. Father, just even thinking about that, I pray that we we would get there, Father. That through the work of your spirit in our lives, we would get to a place where we would be in agony over sin. That we would hate it and loathe it. That we would repent and turn from it. We could stop dabbling in it. Stop playing with it. Stop entertaining it. But Father, we, I pray that as we partake in this communion meal, as we remember Christ offering up His body, His very blood, His life, that it wasn't just a physical death. It wasn't just some guy that went to a cross and died, but it was the very son of God, the holy son of God, the sinless son of God that became on that cross, the sin bearer, our sin bearer, taking upon himself that sin that he might be punished, that he might be, or receive your wrath so that your justice would be served for, for sin must be punished. It cannot be overlooked. You cannot just forget about sin, sweep it under the carpet, but you, because you are holy, must punish it, all of it, every bit of it. And the only way for that demand, for that justice to be accomplished was for the sinless Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, to offer up Himself as a sacrifice in our place. If we had to pay for it, we would spend an eternity in hell paying for it and it still wouldn't be enough. But Jesus did it! He paid it in full! And He said, it is finished, and that is what we celebrate in this communion meal. Father, may that truth revolutionize our attitude towards Christ. That Christ would not just be something That we add to our life. But He becomes our life. He is our very life. That we might follow Him. That we might love Him. That we might worship Him. That we might obey Him. In Jesus' name.